Hi, everyone. I am Sarah Edmondson, and I'm here with... Hi, I'm Anthony Ames, Sarah's husband, a.k.a. Nippy. And we're here to talk about things that are a little bit culty. Speaking of, we were in a cult and we woke up, thank goodness, and we have a lot to say. And a lot to ask. This podcast is going to be a deep dive into everything from the red flags to the narcissism, the manipulation, the resiliency, the recovery process, and everything in between. Also, we want to share some of the good we got out of it so you can get all the nuggets without having to join a cult. If you haven't already, because there are a lot of things out there that are just a little bit culty. Welcome to A Little Bit Culty, a podcast about the fads, beliefs, and trends that blur the line between healthy and a little bit culty. Please subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And find us on Instagram if you have any suggestions for things you have found to be a little bit culty. Under the surface, the water fills my lungs. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of A Little Bit Culty. This episode, we're going to get into something that's a lot culty. First, as always, I'm going to check in on my wife. How are you doing, sweetheart? Oh, Nippy, that's so kind of you I to... rarely use sweetheart. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just buttering her up for this episode. What do you want, Nippy? Yes, right. Good morning. How are you? Mm-hmm. How are you feeling? Chilling. We're ready to rumble here. Okay, so we're going to start with questions. Yeah, go ahead. Go hit me. Intro. Okay, so there was a big announcement a couple of days ago. Uh, for those of you who are following the story of the vow and Nexium and all that, and I imagine if you're this deep into it, you have at least a superficial understanding of what was going on. There are something called the Dossier Project, which is the DOS uh, women's group, and they made a statement. And the statement was a lot of word salad. You can look it up, whatever. I'm basically trying to say Keith's misunderstood. And I rarely get involved, and I rarely give them a platform or anything like that and don't care to because I think that's what they're looking for. But I did make a couple comments on a podcast in the Times Union, particularly because they targeted Sarah. And of course, I defended her. Um, But I wanted to know for you, how does it feel for these people that used to be your friends to be on their end of their psychology that's really out for revenge to destroy you? What's that like? Uh, You know, it's it's kind of a... Because it chaps my ass. It's It does chap my ass, but it's also like devastating to see that we're three years out of this thing. Six weeks trial of evidence at their fingertips and they're still claiming, well, their, their, their words were, were that was that I had a false narrative and that because of my false narrative, the FBI made a trial and, and put an innocent man in jail. And I, and I, you know, I guess the thing that comes up for me, similar to what I said in the Times Union is like, okay, let's just say I had a false narrative. Let's say I made it all up. What about all the other women? Mm -hmm. What about all of the other victims that have been going to the authorities for years, even before Nexium started? Does it affect your day-to-day when you get like... No, it doesn't affect my day-to-day. I don't give them Mm -hmm. that power. But I mean, as you know, part of why I'm even doing this is to raise awareness and educate people and hope that some of this information will get to them and they will wake up. Well, seed planted. You know, seed planted. And I guess what I would say to them is how do you deny all of the other, all the other women's testimony? Well, they're not interested in truth, right? No. They're interested in pushing their narrative. The only time they handle truth is when they're dividing the word of truth. Explain that, dividing the word of truth. Well, they'll do it by getting people bogged down in content points. 
and they'll argue language. It's, it's, it's what we talked about in one of our episodes about loaded language. They'll divide, they'll say things. Well, there's a difference between harm and pain. Explain, or, explain to like an average listener why that's gaslighting even. Well, to get into how they divide the word of truth, it's, it's in essence taking whatever content point you have and confusing it. So they lie by omission because they take it out of context. The entire system, the entire process of what Keith was doing is abusive. So they'll just ignore that and they'll go, well, these women wanted it. Well, they wanted it on under a false pretense. They're doing the abusing while being abused and pretending that it's noble. So it's, a lot of it's pretend. But to say there's a difference between harm and pain, the question would be like, well, can you have harm without pain? Can you have pain without harm? But really the entire process is coupled in abuse. So harm and pain, no matter what context there are in the situation, because they're under this process of abuse, are abusive. And lying to someone under a false pretense to be specific with what the abuse is, is the abuse. So the horror comes when you find out, and the pain and the trauma comes when you find out you've been lied to. And the difficult thing to quantify in any of these things is emotional pain. And you can always deny that. You can just say, well, I'm not in emotional pain. You are. That's yours. And then when you say, well, I'm sorry that they choose to perceive it that way, it's basically saying that the abuse doesn't exist. You're making it abuse based on your meaning that you ascribe to it rather than the fact that the entire fucking thing is abusive and you're denying that it's abusive and you're choosing to say that it's not abusive when it is. Just because you don't recognize it as abuse doesn't mean it's not. When you say you, you mean the doctor? Them. Them. Yes. Okay. So you, not the listener, you, you the doctor. You know, you see it, you can, you can see it in abusive relationships. You say, well, oh, well, he doesn't mean it that way when, when he's hitting you, he's abusing you. And you're saying you're ascribing a meaning to his hitting you as saying that he loves you or whatever he, or he's hurting or something like that to justify his abuse. So they've justified the abuse in their own minds and further kick the healing process for themselves down the road. And well, it's they, all they the have to. I mean, yeah, the doctor no, no, no. has to because she's protecting her image. She's protecting yeah. the fact that she's a good doctor, which I do believe she was before Keith got into her head. All she has to do is have a conversation, admit that was going on, and then she'd be in good standing with probably the community. And they'd heal, she'd heal, and then she could But instead, she back. says the women wanted it. And to that, I have to respond very clearly. I did not want this. I did not want this. I never would have wanted it. Think about it for a second. I had a question for you, but that took a while. So let's move on to introducing our guest who I can't even tell you. I'm so, ah, I mean, honored is not the right word. It's just, it feels similarly to talking with Leah in in a previous episode to talk to Mike Render. Mike Rinder. (laughs) Who is born and raised in Scientology. He's just such a like a figurehead in the cult busting world for us. And like I said, in in his episode and and Leah's, if he hadn't done what he did and been so public about his calling bullshit on his organization, then I don't think that we would have had the the same force or power behind us in our journey of of being whistleblowers. Well, there's an example of how it's done. Yeah. Yes, there's an example. He's a trailblazer. So Mike actually rose to the very top of the organization's worldwide hierarchy to become one of the international spokespeople and the head of special affairs for over 20 years. Mike worked directly with L. Ron Hubbard, a.k.a. LRH, and Hubbard's successor, David Miscavige. And when Mike escaped Scientology in 2007, he left everything he'd ever known behind, including his family. In addition to starting over, he's also become a very well-known whistleblower and just general badass. He's been dedicating his life to exposing the abuses in Scientology, teaming up with Leah Remini for the groundbreaking Emmy-winning A&E series, Scientology in the Aftermath, 
which is actually now on Netflix in the US, as well as the podcast Scientology Fair Game. One of the more compelling things about Mike, in my opinion, is that he's become an advocate for people who've been abused in Scientology and beyond. He's become an ambassador and he's on the board of Child USA, which is a nonprofit working to bring justice for victims of child sexual abuse. He's also a founding board member of the Aftermath Foundation, which is dedicated to helping people escape from Scientology. His unique voice and perspective has inspired people around the world. And here's our conversation with him. Mike, thank you so much for joining us today. We're so excited. Can I ask a quick question Wait, before we start? No, no. I got to tell about the pumping. That... <laughs> I mean, well, it's important because it, it, it... But I just wanted him to know that we've already pumped his tires yeah. in the intro. And not everyone... Yeah, that's... A, I, I want to know what the hell does that mean and, and what pressure am I at? Well, pumping your tires is something like... Nippy will say something like... like a, you, you can't pump your own tires because then you're boasting. like you're boasting. So I like to pump Nippy's tires and be like, <laughs> Nippy's really good at X, Y, and Z. Yeah. And, and he'll do the same for me. So we just pumped your tires like hard. <laughs> All the things that you've been doing and like what an advocate you are. And also, you know, what a what an inspiration you are to us. And I, I know we've I've said this to you already, but your our our listenership doesn't know, you know, how much you've done to help us get out as a trailblazer in the cult whistleblowing, cult busting world. Well, thank you. So, yeah, but you had a question. Sorry, Nippy. Well, it, it's <laughs> not so much a question as an observation. It, I know it's Mike Rinder, but Leah likes to call you Mike Roinda. That's that's just because she she likes to try to make fun of my Australian mongrel accent. And she's not really very good at it. I like it. I want to take that over. Even in Australia, they don't say Mike Rinder. What do they say? Mike Rinder. Oh, okay. Because that's my name. <laughs> but that would be how you would think an Australian would say it. Because all vowels are extended long vowels in, in Australia. Nippy, you're perfectly welcome to keep it. it like, like, that is the least offensive thing I've ever been called. <laughs> You've been through the ringer too. So, you know, I think this is, this is just pure love in this podcast. This is, this is part of your therapy. Cause I, I, I listened to one of your podcasts where you said that you aren't in therapy. So we've decided this is actually, this is going to be therapy for you. I'm just chilling. Yeah. Well, my therapist is Leah Remini. I, 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 that was one of my questions. <laughs> that was actually one of my questions. Direct feedback. Yeah. There you so go. before we get into that, I just have to tell you a quick story. So yesterday I was out. Uh, just in front of our apartment here, there's a little like piazza and I was pushing the the baby stroller and I had Ace in the in the carriage and I was with my dad, who's very supportive of what we do, but doesn't really know like what the day to day is. You know, he, he like I just downloaded the podcast app on his phone so he could subscribe to our podcast. He's like a little behind in the technology times, but he's like he knows what I'm doing. He's he's proud of me and he's but he never seen this. And what happened was we we're walking across the square and this woman called out to me and she said, are, are you Sarah? And I turn around like, uh, yeah, hi. And she go, and she was like shaking. And she's like, I, I, I'm an ex-Scientologist. And I saw the vow. And what you're doing is like amazing. And she started to cry. And, and I started to cry. And then my dad started to cry because he'd never seen, <laughs> he'd never seen like the effects of this, like in the day-to-day -day life. And um, 
She yeah. was like, and then she told me her whole story, like how her husband was in the military and Scientology made her divorce him. And then she realized she made a mistake and she went back to him and she got cut out by her family and she's being, you know, got disconnected and how and her family's still in it. And she's just devastated. And she's like, but the work you're doing is so important. And the vow helped me. And, and I said, this is so crazy. I'm talking to Mike Rinder tomorrow. And he, she goes, well, he doesn't know me, but I know him. And, and his work is so meaningful to me. And, and then I, I kept, <laughs> we were like, this all through the tears. You know, I just thought it was so like, what a moment that I knew I was going to be talking to you. And then also for my dad to see, you know, the effects of this work on people that we don't even know, you know, that are just right watching this stuff. And then, you know, it just happened to run into her in front of my apartment. And if you believe in signs if, from the universe, or if you believe in like reinforcement that you're doing the right thing, you know, I just, I just want yeah. you to know. Yeah, yeah. I, that, that's terrific. Th- thank you so much for telling me that those are the stories that make the pain and the heartache worthwhile. Like people reach out all the time, even people who haven't been involved in Scientology, but have been involved in other organizations or even abusive relationships or whatever it is and say, you know, I just want to let you know that something that you did or something that you said or something that was on the show impacted my life. And that is everything. That is more valuable than money. That's more valuable than Emmy Awards. That's more valuable than anything that you can get is the appreciation from people and then With that appreciation comes the knowledge that somehow something you've done has helped someone. Just like you and everybody else I have ever met who was involved in a cult of one description or another, every single person had as an underlying personality characteristic that they wanted to help people. Even if it started out as being that they wanted to help themselves, Mm -hmm. they graduate from that almost uniformly into, and I found this thing that helped me, and now I want others to experience it too. And it's not because they are trying to make a million dollars out of it. It's because they really believe that they can help people. And I think that that. We, you know, you guys and me and Leah and everybody else who has spoken out and is trying to put an end to the abuses of, you know, high control groups has that as a common denominator. And it's a pretty good gang of people to be associated with. It just is. I like this gang. I agree. I think we need a, I think we need a name for this gang. Like a. <laughs> oh, and a secret handshake. No, no, just kidding. Too too soon. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Our general oh, format for interviewing guests, just so you know what, what our plan is for today, is overall, how'd you get in? And I know you were born and raised, and we have questions about that, but like, you know, what how did this get started for you? How did you wake up? What were the red flags? And how did you get out? How are you healing? And and then you know, we have lots of other general questions, but that's sort of the overall sort of we want to cover just just in case there's anyone listening who doesn't know your full story. We don't have to spend a long time here because I know it's it's out there in the 
internet universe. Um, so some questions about that. And mm-hmm. then we just have like, you know, things we want to know and, and share with you as well. And, and some similarities between our two groups in general. See, I told Leah is, is Scientology light. Yeah. Just in terms of the amount of people that were extreme. But in terms of process, the abuses of power to me are always the things that are the most interesting. And, and I have a bunch of questions about how that happens. I listened to the podcast you did with Ford Green and how the First yeah. Amendment has been twisted to protect an abusive entity and, and all those things. So I'd, I'd like to get into that at some point and, and hear your thoughts on that. Just to hear uh, a little bit about your background. I know you're, you were born and raised into Scientology, but when your parents got involved, what did they think they were getting involved in? Like, what was the promise that you, that, as far as you understand? As far as I understand, they they thought that what they were going to get out of Scientology, and I think that this, you know, they they both died still absolutely full-on, completely dedicated Scientologists, that they believed that they were going to get a technology, which is how it's described in Scientology, similar to Nexium, that this is not just a belief system or faith. This is a technology for how to deal with life. This is how to make yourself a better human being, how to make those around you a better human being, how to raise your children properly and effectively, and how to be happier and more capable. And that is the promise that Scientology holds out to everybody. These are the the sort of catchy kind of things that it offers. And, you know, when you offer that to people and you tell them that, that you have a technology for accomplishing it, there is a lot of people who will then attest that that is exactly what happened to them. And... You know, there are smatterings of valuable, truthful things contained in Scientology, just as there are smatterings of valuable, truthful things contained in Nexium and anything else that attracts people. You don't attract people by giving them complete <laughs> bullshit. If you give them complete bullshit, everybody walks away and goes, well, there's nothing to this. But if you've got some little bits and kernels and things that, uh, you know, someone once described this as the raisins embedded in the poop. Like if there's some raisins (laughs) in there that you can pick out, there's some value to it. If it's just a stinky pile of shit, then it has no value. And then you start getting the attestations and affirmations from people about what they experience changed their life. And that's very common in Scientology. In fact, it's a requirement when you complete a course of study or a course of auditing, which is Scientology counseling, you are required to write what is called a success story, which is used for public consumption. And Scientology uses those things to promote to other people that you can have these benefits Mm. too. You know, it's funny, Sarah, when I was reading your book, and I I told you this when you were talking to Leah and I on our podcast, there are so many similarities between these concepts and even terminology in Nexium from Scientology that it is absolutely impossible for for me to believe that Keith Ranieri didn't study Hubbard, not just as as a, you know, sort of 
oh, here's something I, I should probably read a bit about this, but actually study to figure out how did he go about setting up his mm-hmm. deal to duplicate things that he thought were successful, which are successful in Scientology into Nexium. So the idea that my parents had, now that they had found the answers to everything, and truthfully, Scientology promises it has the answers to all of life. I mean, Hubbard says that. Scientology has the answers to all of life, everything, anything. So they believe that having found those answers for themselves, that they needed to indoctrinate their children into those same concepts. And so there is a sort of a a saying in Scientology of, if you don't know what to do, figure out what would Ron do, Ron being L. Ron Hubbard. So my childhood, I spent with the, growing up with the idea of solving problems or addressing life through the glasses, I can't say rose-colored glasses, the, you know, distorted glasses of what would Ron do? What does Ron say? How does Ron tell you to address this problem? And by the time I was in high school, it was a foregone conclusion to me that as soon as I graduated high school, I was going to join the Sea Organization, that I was going to become a part of the inner circle of Scientology that devote their full-time endeavors to achieving the aims of Scientology, and that's the Sea Organization. So it was a point of pride for my parents that I joined the Sea Org. And extra pride for my parents that not only did I join the Sea Org, I went and worked directly with L. Ron Hubbard. Wow. And that was like- What an honor. That's exactly what it was. It was like being a good Catholic and having your son end up at the Vatican, you know, within a, a, a year of joining the church, you know, or joining the clergy. And suddenly now he's at the Vatican and pretty soon he becomes an archbishop. And that was, I don't know, to some extent, ex- expected of me. And it's almost what's expected of good right. Scientologists, that their children are going to become the future of Scientology, because they've been raised in the with the pure thoughts of Scientology from the get-go to now continue the pure thoughts of Scientology for planet Earth. I totally get that. I, I don't know if this was in the book much at all, but Nippy and I, like, before, you know, Troy was three when we got out. And for those first three years, we were really excited about the possibility of raising our kid in this community. And I remember in Albany, where it was more insular, there was concern about like, what are our kids going to do in a non, you know, ESP school where the kids aren't at, aren't, aren't right. at cause? Like they're not at cause, you know, and, and, and their grandparents who aren't in ESP are going to say things. Well, that makes me sad. And you're like, and the little kid would be like, it doesn't make that. I don't make you sad, grandma. You make yourself sad. Like that were those are the kind right. of anecdotes we'd hear. And we're like, well, we needed education, which is where the rainbow school, I think, which is probably kids version of the Sea Org. Anyway, I, I interrupted. So you, you had this like really successful career in Scientology. Was there a particular moment where you woke up? Um, this, I'm, I'm kind of skipping, I'm skipping kind of to the end. We, one of the things we like to, to teach here is what are the red flags so we could, so people can learn from them in their own life. 
what were the red flags maybe along the way that you not ignored, but like compartmentalized or couldn't wrap your head around? And then or the red flags around if you worked with L. Ron Hubbard. What, yeah. What was, was there anything there? Was, well, there's thousands of right. them. And this is sort of what's interesting about the experience of immersing yourself into a cult and then ultimately getting out is you can look back and go, well, I can't believe that I didn't really, you know, that didn't have an impact on me, or I can't believe that I didn't see that, or I can't believe that I fell for this bullshit, or et cetera, et cetera. But I think that there is another dynamic that goes on within your head. And that is, there are teachings within Scientology that are very, very strongly reinforce this idea, which is the, the concept, you know, in, in sort of normal terms is the ends justify the means. In Scientology, there is a very specific term for this. It's called the greatest good for the greatest number of dynamics. And I'm not going to go into a long description, but dynamics in Scientology, uh, what Hubbard says are the thrusts towards survival, the eight components of life or compartments of life, which are the thrusts towards your survival. And it starts with yourself, and then it goes out in concentric circles to your family, to your groups, to mankind, to living things, to the physical universe, to spiritual universe, and ultimately to God. And the idea is that what is beneficial to the greater number of those dynamics is what is good and survival. And what is harmful to the greater number of those dynamics is called contra-survival. Now, one of those dynamics happens to be the third dynamic, and the third dynamic is groups. Now, that means Every Scientologist has as his, or at least one of the groups that he is a part of, is Scientology. But when you start breaking down this equation, it's, it's like it all makes terrific sense when you're in there. But the truth of the matter is that because Scientologists believe that Scientology is the solution to every problem that every person has, including all the problems of mankind, and not just mankind, but this entire sector of the universe, then what's good for Scientology is good for all the dynamics. Mm-hmm. Because it's good for every other person, it's good for families, it's good for living things, it's good for the planet, it's good for... God, I mean, everything. So this equation becomes a completely skewed equation, which is what is survival equals what is survival for Scientology. Right. It could be horrendously destructive to you, and you get persuaded that the destruction that you are experiencing is a small speck in the overall picture of the good that is being done for the entirety of every man, woman, and child on earth. And so all the things that you see that you go, wait a minute, this is some bullshit here, or this is terrible, or I'm not living in a, in, you know, a bunk with, with stinky blah, you know, blah, 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 or being kept in a room or blah, blah, blah. 
everything get then gets filtered through two factors. That's the first one, which is, look, the pain or suffering that I am experiencing is small potatoes, insignificant nothing compared to the overall big picture of planet Earth. And secondly, just like in Nexium, the bad shit that is happening to me is what I caused. Right. That this is my creation and I have to be responsible for it and own it. And if I can't be responsible for it and own it, that just means I'm not yet fully aware and haven't reached the appropriate levels of understanding of how life works and how I work, et cetera, et cetera. So I go back and I look and I go, you know, the first day I arrived on the Apollo, which was the ship that L. Ron Hubbard was on at the, at the time, I walked in and I discovered for the first time that my life was no longer my own. I was a, effectively a prisoner on that ship. And they took my passport. I didn't have any money. We we're in Portugal. I didn't speak English. I, mean, I didn't speak Portuguese. I had nowhere to go. I couldn't get off. I hated it when I got there. It was gross. I mean, the place, the ship was gross. But, of course, my first thought is, well, this is the home. This is where L. Ron Hubbard lives. So this has got to be like, and there's all these other big advanced Scientology thetans here, and they know a lot more than I do, and they're putting up with it. So it must just be something wrong with my perception or my perspective on this, that I am looking at this as, oh my God, this is terrible. I'm getting out of here. Like, am I rabbiting? Am I running away? Am I coward? Uh, what will people think of me? I mean, all these thoughts go through your head. Of, You're gaslighting yourself because you've been trained to. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It, totally 100%. And you keep adding these up and they add up over time. And, you know, I spent, you know, 30 years at, in the C organization and they add up and they add up and they add up. For each person, the straw that breaks the camel's back is a different thing. Right. And I don't know that there is a way that you can say it's always going to be X or it's always going to be Y. It's an accum every person I've ever spoken to, it's an accumulation of things that starts building in their mind and they start like adding to this sort of ledger of there's something wrong. There's something that doesn't add up. There's something I disagree with. There's something that's bad going on here. I've explained each individual one away, but as they are accumulating, the weight of them gets bigger and bigger. And the benefit side of the equation becomes outweighed eventually by the downside of the equation. Until the last straw lands on the downside side and it suddenly tips mm -hmm. and you go, you know what? All this is, is bigger than all of that. All the bad is bigger than whatever all the good is. 
And ultimately, for me, it got to the point where I'm going to lose my wife, I'm going to lose my children, I'm going to lose every friend that I have ever made in my entire life, I'm going to lose my parents, my brother, my sister, I have no money, I have no job, I have no resume, I'm not even in the United States, I'm in London, and fuck it, anything is better than this. And I walked out the door with nothing. Literally, with a briefcase. I walked out the door of the Scientology old L. Ron Hubbard office in Fitzroy Street in London in June of 2007 with nothing, not even clothes, just what I was wearing. And it was like a moment of perhaps the greatest feeling of freedom that I have had in my entire life despite having written thousands of success stories about how wonderfully free I feel in Scientology, which they bring out right. all the time. Oh, yeah, look at this. He said <laughs> He said all these amazing things about us. It's like now he's just lying because he's saying it's not true and blah, 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 blah. I was literally sitting on the grass in front of the the National Gallery in Trafalgar Square in London in the sun, doing absolutely fuck nothing for the first time in I don't know how long, 30 years, and not feeling guilty about not doing anything and sitting there just soaking up some rays and going, okay, now what am I going to do? Oh, nobody here to tell me what to do anymore. Now I have to figure it out for myself. And my God, that's a scary thought. It's also an incredibly liberating feeling. We tell our stories. We change the world. A Little Bit Culty is proud to support the hashtag I Got Out Project, which empowers survivors of cultic abuse to share their stories online as a catalyst for education, prevention, and healing. Learn more about the hashtag I Got Out movement and find resources at igotout.org. The most compelling yeah. thing about your story is the about face that you made and then went on the crusade to fix what you had done. And not many people do that. Not many people have the character to do that. Well, you guys are. Well, the most compelling story for me when I got out and I saw going clear and all that was that's the guy I resonate the most with. Because as guys were targeted differently, you know, very few of us are targeted sexually in the way that you know, the abuses are. So our abuses are different. Right. And a lot of the times morally, and in some cases, you know, in your case, you were actually facilitating some of the things and to go back and, and, and fix what you had done in the manner. I remember seeing the uh, shot of you. We looked the reporter in the eye. Is that the shot? Uh, and you were, and I believe that was the moment where you saw that or something and you saw yourself. So um, lying, like saying nothing. Saying, yeah. Saying that was that was yeah that was John Sweeney, fun, uh, 
who was the BBC reporter that I was in London to deal with because he was doing a program which ultimately aired. But one of the focuses of his program was he kept insisting that he had testimony from people that David Miscavige was physically assaulting people. And he said, I've got, you know, I've spoken to five or seven eyewitnesses. I didn't even remember how many who said that David Miscavige has physically assaulted you. And I'm standing there looking gaunt and like, uh, you know, I'd just come out of the hole and I weighed about 30 pounds less than I do now with gray bags under my eyes and saying to him, that's an absolute lie. And I had as the spokesperson, the international spokesperson for Scientology for many, many years, told tons of lies. I mean, it's just a requirement. You're not going to go out there and say, oh, yes, we just, you know, the, the, all these people uh, killed Lisa McPherson or, oh, yes, the Xenu story is all true. And yes, we believe in crazy space aliens. You know, I sat on the Today Show with Katie Couric and denied that there was any such thing as Xenu. Because I believe that that was spiritually harmful. That's what Scientologists are taught. It was called an ethical lie in Nexium, and you're doing an ethical lie. Yeah. That's exactly right. It was an ethical lie. I couldn't hurt people. I truly believed at that point that I was going to hurt people if I said that. I'm now standing in London and, you know, having been in the hole for a year and, you know, being just the abuse got worse and worse and worse. The physical and mental abuse got worse and worse and worse. And the, and the thing that had always prevented me from just up and walking out apart from the physical, you know, challenges of doing so, because, you know, at the golden era base in, in Hammock, California, that's a really hard place to get out of. I mean, it's not just the barbed wire fence. It's like in the middle of nowhere and there's security guards and cameras and they track you down and chase you down and people have done it. Mark Headley escaped from there. Ron Miscavige escaped from there. Val Haney escaped from there. A lot of people have done it if you have the determination to do so. But what held me back from doing so primarily was my children and my wife. Mm. I didn't, I couldn't figure out how to get them out with me. I couldn't say anything to them because if I said anything, it was very likely that they would report me and then the gig would be up anyway. But what happened sort of as a very short period is I'm standing there with John Sweeney and Sweeney is saying, you know, I've got eyewitness reports that David Miscavige has physically assaulted you. And I knew that was absolutely true. And I knew even who he'd talked to. It was Jeff Hawkins. It was Bruce Hines. It was all these other people that I knew John had spoken to who were all there with me, who had watched the same thing happen to me, to them, to all sorts of other people. And I'm thinking, why am I lying about this? Is this really what I came into Scientology for? Is Protecting David Miscavige because he is physically assaulting and abusing people, the right thing to do. And that was like a real moment of, oh my God, wh wh where have I descended to? Right. Like, what, what have I become? Mm -hmm. And then very shortly thereafter, 
Miscavige sends the uh, uh, a thing to someone else with a CC to me saying he's never coming back to the United States. He's I'm going to send him to Western Australia, <laughs> and he's going to become uh, like he's going to have to sell his body on the streets if he wants to make a living. This was <laughs> this is what David Miscavige writes, <laughs> and I looked at that and I went, you know what? There's nothing left. Mm-hmm. There's nothing. It, it couldn't be worse being walking out the door with nothing and no family and nothing couldn't be worse than this because I don't have any of that anyway. It doesn't exist anymore. It's all been taken away from me. So what am I fighting about? Fuck this. I'm out of here. In one of your other podcasts, the extremism, like there's no half in the Scientology and ultimately that eats itself. And one of the distinctions I noticed between what we were up against and what you were up against is we had our lives outside of it. I had my family and, and, and we were in and out of it. But the, the all or nothing aspect to Scientology is like, if you're a Scientologist, you're extreme with your Scientology and your dogma. Whereas you can be a Catholic, just go on Sunday and you don't have to do all that stuff. That to me seems to be a major distinction about the abuses because the indoctrination seems very quick, very extreme. Because one of the other things I read as well, in Australia, you weren't allowed to have the books there. Is, it, is that correct? Well, they were hidden. They were hidden. Because in the in the 60s, Scientology was banned in, well, at least in Victoria, and then they were working on it in other states. So what did they get that the U.S. doesn't? If they see the extreme, the the well, well, nippy, they got it back then. But then the Australian High Court, the Supreme Court of Australia, made a ruling subsequently that Scientology is a religion, and it's a seminal case in Australia of how do you define religion? And they went through and said Scientology is that. So it's not all good down there. Steve Canan, who is an Australian journalist, wrote this wonderful book called uh, entitled Fair Game. And he traces the history of Scientology in Australia and how that all came about. And ridiculous as this probably sounds, it was a, a combination of two things. One, Hubbard refusing to return money to a guy. One guy who became a very, very big thorn in Hubbard's side, and he happened to be politically connected, and he was, I mean, this this story that Steve tells is pretty amazing. But two, there was a, a particular fellow in Australia by the name of Rupert Murdoch. Yeah. Rupert Murdoch, who, believe it or not, lived one quarter of a mile away from my house, I'd rode past his house on my bicycle every morning to go to school. He started at the Adelaide News, the evening news in Adelaide. That's why it's called News Corporation, Hmm. because that was his father's newspaper, and he built that into an empire from Adelaide, Australia. The only thing that's ever come out of Adelaide, Australia, I think. And his newspapers in Australia went after Scientology with a vengeance. And they were the original, like, tabloid newspapers. There was this newspaper in Australia called Truth, which was far from it. But nevertheless, they went heavily after Scientology and had a great deal of political influence. And so that's why in the 60s, 
Scientology got in such trouble in Australia. It's still like, even though there is a high court decision there now, Scientology doesn't flourish in Australia at all. There's a lot of There's a lot more willingness, I think, in Australian society to be vocally critical of things, even if people tend to like there's too much political correctness here in the U.S. You know, obviously, like when I watch Scientology in the aftermath or listen to Fair Game, the the podcast about Scientology, like I I can't help but compare, you know, like, oh, yeah, we did that. And always for sure. Keith, I mean, Keith took so much from Scientology. You're absolutely right, including things like you know, trying to make a film crew, like you guys had a proper film crew, but you know, like, but what you have to know is that everything that we did was so half-ass in comparison. Like you guys had a legitimate film crew. Valerie was the casting director. I was like, wow, that is amazing. Ours was so haphazard and like low budget, like, like, like Keith wanted it, but like, but Claire wasn't willing to fund it properly. You know what I mean? Like it was just always never quite fully baked. Um, <laughs> and so I, you know, and, and I watch it going, wow, like they really head out together. But one thing that I hadn't realized until one of your, one of the episodes I watched was that I didn't realize that people actually could leave Scientology. Like when I read it or watched about how Valerie got out of the trunk of the car, but then she went back, she went back and left properly, um, r- routing out. Is that what it's called? Rooting out? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Sea Org members. Okay. So I don't think this has been talked about anywhere, but for us, we also had to, and this was like in the later years, people, people came and left and it wasn't a problem, but as there was more adversity against Nexium, it wouldn't be a problem for people to leave as long as they signed paperwork that was almost identical to what was, what, what you guys explained saying, I'm leaving on good terms. I had a great experience you know, I, all is well. And I I promise never to use any of the technology methodology ever in my life. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I was asked to do when Bonnie left, because Bonnie left before us all, thank goodness, is I was assigned because I was what's called her upline green. Well, actually Mark was, Mark was her upline green, but, but because Mark was her husband, (laughs) I was the next person. Yeah. It didn't count because I basically had to go to her and say, and honestly, and I've told her this and she knows this, I was happy for her when she left. You know, I wanted her to go to LA and pursue her acting because inside me, I, that's why I wanted anyone to do Nexium or right. SPs because I wanted them to, to use it in their life and achieve their goals, you know, but inside me also, cause I had the, right. you know, my, my personality. And then also had like Sarah, the proctor personality, the proctor personality was like, how dare she leave with all these responsibilities like that I have right. now got to clean up because she's leaving. So I was like happy for her and pissed that she left so abruptly all at the same time. It was a conflict within myself, but then they asked me to get her to sign this paperwork and she wouldn't respond to me, which was one of my red flags is like, if she's leaving on good terms, why wouldn't she just sign the paperwork? But then I didn't want to like, I'm not that kind of person to be like, you know, to go after her for it. So I I left her a message, which was in the vow saying like, if you could just like just sign the paperwork and it was becoming a thing, like, I don't know what's going on with you. Um, But thank God that she didn't because... And I didn't either. I didn't sign my paperwork when I left. And that's why Claire withheld all the money that was owed to me. I think it's well documented that I wasn't signing it. (laughs) (laughs) So the other thing I wanted to bring up is that I feel like, like, it was almost like Keith looked at Scientology and was like, well, that's a bit obvious. So I'm going to like dial it back and make it look like everyone's asking for it and make it look more consensual and do the abuse in a 
mm, like a tacit kind of, it's just an exercise type of thing. Um, you know, when I saw the episode where they talked about giving you a name tag saying that you were the shit eater, is that right? And I was like, oh God, well, first of all, I'm sorry that that happened to you. I know I just like, my heart was like, oh my God, my printer's like the opposite of the shit eater, whatever the fuck that means. Um, but I remember like, you know, some SOP trainings and people have looked at it and going like, how could you have endured that latent misogyny and being humiliated? I'm like, but you have to understand this wasn't, I don't think, super well explained in any of the documentaries. We entered that thinking we were going through a boot camp where we were going to be humiliated for the purpose of our growth. So that's like the more subtle version of what you were saying. Everything's for the goodness of the good of the dynamics and all that stuff. When I was in there, I'm like, this sucks. And I can't go to the bathroom for three hours. Otherwise, I'm going to be, I'm going to get a princess tiara or something, you know, <laughs> because I have to pee too much. And I'm not going to, like in any other training, just so you know, Mike, I would have like a water bottle, a green juice, a coffee, some aromatherapy spray, like whatever I could to like get oh, wow. through. <laughs> and people made fun of me for it, right? Like, and fair enough, right? I'm I, fair enough. But, but with SOP, I, <laughs> I couldn't, I wasn't allowed any of my accoutrements. So I just learned how to be like a good soldier and get through these trainings and like not drink too many liquids. And I couldn't get up, couldn't check my phone, couldn't do all the things. I mean, I could have, but then I would have been called out. But I knew that I was doing that to, to toughen up, you know, and not be a, not be a princess anymore. Right. And, and this is something that that is promoted heavily in Scientology, most particularly in the C organization. Within the C organization, there is this idea that being empathetic or being soft is a sign of lack of commitment. And by soft, I mean caring about things. Like it is a, it is a, a big, big down uh, negative mark against you as a Sea Org member if you are seen to be what's called worker-oriented. Mm. If you are seen to be sympathetic to the people who you are in charge of. If you are seen to be concerned about their well-being rather than concerned about whether they are getting the job done that needs to be done in order to clear the planet. And there, you know, like the rehabilitation project force, which is the, the mind, the way that, that SEOG members are supposed to be reindoctrinated is, and it's laid out in these writings. This is going to be terrible. It's going to be nasty, tough. You're going to sleep on the floor. You're going to wear a black boiler suit. You're not allowed to talk to anybody outside of the RPF anybody at all, unless they address you. You have to run everywhere. You get to eat the leftover food from the rest of the Sea Org members once they're done eating. You are not allowed contact with any member of the, the organization or your family. You are going to work doing menial labor for 10 hours a day. You are like, this is considered to be like this is how we rehabilitate someone. This is how we make them good again. This is how we get them to be a productive member of the Sea Organization by abusing them. And it's all like proudly done. And 
Tommy Davis, who was the idiot spokesperson that that sort of took over from me, made this comment sometime about, yeah, we're tough and we're <laughs> proud of it. And we're like, like, like that's a good thing. <laughs> whoa. Like that, like you lose perspective on the world outside of that bubble. You lose, like you ask a SEOG member and they will tell you, yes, this is exactly what we do. And this is exactly what they think. And they think it's fabulous. But it's a good segue to what's happening now, right? With the In dossier. Like Nippy yeah. and I were just talking about the dossier project, which we sent you. And <laughs> and the people that remain, it's exactly that. They think it's fabulous. And they're saying, right. yeah, we knew we were going to do it as a boot camp. And we knew we were going to be in pain. And that was what Sarah committed to. And the fact that she's leaving and broke her secrecy and has a false narrative just means she did, She still hasn't done the work. She's, she's, she's like breaking her vow, which is what women do. They can't keep a secret. And, they're, and she's not tough enough or strong enough like us true believers. And that's why Keith's in jail, doesn't mean my false narrative. <laughs> right. You know, you were talking, Nippy, about extremists. Real religions have a fundamentalist sort of on the fringes part of their activities. Judaism has the the real fundamentalist Hasidic, you know, the Mormons have the the LDS, like the really fundamentalist, you know, five or six wives and all the all the, the daughters, and Muslims have it, and everybody has fundamentalist arms. Um, you know, the Westboro Baptist Church is a fundamentalist arm of the Baptist. The mainstream Baptists are just normal, nice people. You know, they're they're not out there, God hates fags. They're just normal, nice people. But Scientology is 100% fundamentalist. The teachings of L. Ron Hubbard include a line in the writing of Hubbard that every person has to read at the beginning of every single course, which says, I'd rather have you dead than incompetent as a Scientologist. Wow. I would rather you be like, you're 100% in Scientology or you are not a Scientologist. You are 100% committed or you're a nothing. So that's part of the planted phobia, right? Like if you leave, you believe that you're nothing. Absolutely. Oh, you're worse than nothing. I mean, the stories and what gets told to SEOG members, when they leave, SEOG members, people inside the SEOG today believe that every person who leaves the SEOG is to begin with probably, and this is a this is like repeated a thousand times. You can ask any ex-SEOG member, oh, they're flipping burgers at McDonald's. <laughs> That's what they do for a living now. Like there's something demeaning about that. But secondly, and they all end up dead, dying of cancer dying of some terrible disease they have they get run over by a truck like literally they believe that leaving yeah. equates to suddenly their life is going to become a living hell so how do they justify your success now look at you're so happy you got a beautiful they don't, they don't. this they is the thing this is the thing sarah they can't they what they do is they put for their internal public they put up these smear sites and those smear sites always have pictures of, you know, 
Leah well, like expanded to look like she weighs 275 pounds and me to look like I'm a drug addict and that I'm a wife abuser and that I'm a children killer and that this and that that so that they can show to those people who might come along and say, oh, my God. I was sitting and I, I turned on Netflix and oh my God, this show came on and I had no idea what it was. And suddenly I'm seeing ex Scientologists on there and they're talking about being abused and blah, blah, blah. What, what am I supposed to do? And Scientology, ah, yeah, that's just those people. They're horrible, failing people and his pictures of them the look at them they look terrible they look because if you look on their smear sites every picture of us is like oh my god they've they've photoshopped it so it's all like oh look dark right. you know and they capture they go through videos and they capture when you're like looking like that yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's freeze framed and that's what they do they they're the biggest, and I said this to you, Sarah, about those DOS people, the biggest audience for that thing is not outside of Nexium. It's the people who are still in there that they're desperate to hang on right. to, that they don't want to lose anymore. They're bleeding badly. They don't want to lose more. Mm -hmm. So they got to have this stuff that they can show to their people inside to try and hang on to them. And they're way more successful in, in doing that. Like the, the yeah. worst they can say about us is that Nippy's got an anger issue and I'm just looking for attention. So, you know. Like, so, okay. okay. So here we are, Mike. Whoa. Whoa. 2021. Everything about Scientology is somewhat out there. Most of it's out there. How is Scientology still able to exist? If it's thriving, how is it able to thrive? And how is there a support system that exists for it to thrive? And, and how does it end? How do you, where do you punch him? How do you punch him? You know, can you punch him in the wallet? Can you punch him? Like, what, what does it look like when Scientology and this extremism comes to an end? Why hasn't it so far? Okay. That's a great question, Nippy. And it's, you know, a thing that, uh, that we struggle with and frustrates Leah to no end. I will answer you in, in the way that I view this. And it's funny. I was just talking to someone on a podcast about Mormonism and ex-Mormons, and he asked exactly the same question. He said, you know, it gets so frustrating. And blah, blah, blah. I look at things like Scientology and the arc of how society changes and how things change to put an end to abuses. And it is a typically a long process. If you look back at the civil rights movement, it took a long time and a lot of blood, sweat, and tears, and a lot of protests, and a lot of activity by a lot of people to first of all start changing public perception, and then ultimately to get the Civil Rights Act passed into law. If you look back at the struggles that the LBGTQ community has had and look back to the 60s, you were an absolute fringe lunatic if you supported gay rights. And even into the 70s, but then it started changing. And ultimately, it gets to the point where the fringe belief becomes 
reversed. And it's no longer a fringe belief to be for gay rights. Today, it is a fringe belief to be against gay rights. It was a fringe belief to be pro-civil rights. It ultimately became a fringe belief. You're, you're now uh, uh, literally a Nazi if you're against civil rights. Those things then go to the next step. Once you have changed public perception, that part of that public perception is the perception of elected officials and law enforcement. And when you start bringing about that change, ultimately you get to the point where the people who can actually bring about that change, like I, Leah and I can scream from the rooftops. We can have, we could have 24 Emmy winning shows and that would not result in the loss of tax exempt status for Scientology. We can't do that. The IRS can, we cannot. Members of Congress can put pressure on the IRS. We can only raise awareness and generate understanding that something needs to be done. And ultimately, that is what will happen. Ultimately, what will happen is that just like, you know, now there is legislation being enacted to prevent discrimination based on gender or sexual orientation, and that will ultimately pass. And there's no question that within the next five years, there will be law in the United States that prevents that. Going back to the 1970s, it was you were a fringe hippie nutcase if you came out and spoke pro-gay rights. Before, and I, I believe that starting with Going Clear and Alex Gibney's tremendously impressive film on HBO about Scientology and then carrying on with the aftermath, we have systematically been changing the public perception of Scientology from this is a fringe bunch of weirdos in Hollywood that jump on Oprah's couch to this is an organization that systematically abuses people and that people are being hurt and harmed and that that should not be tolerated in society. The next step is to make that intolerance. The next step is to make that intolerance into the law and to translate that outrage and the unwillingness to allow this to go on into enforceable laws. And that is what will ultimately happen. The difficulty that exists is Because Scientology cleverly, and this was Keith Raniere's biggest mistake in my view, because Scientology is a religious organization, it has an enormous amount of legal protections afforded it in the United States. And because other religions who pretty uniformly seem to be engaged in one sort of abuse or another, whether it's the Catholic Church or the Jehovah's Witnesses or whoever, all across the spectrum, somewhere down the line, they've got some really like 
nasty shit going on, financial, sexual, abusive people, breaking up families, whatever it is. But because they have such a powerful lobby and such powerful and influential people that are elected officials, those churches and religious organizations have seen that the the Scientologies of the world are their cannon fodder. Scientology is the frontline cannon fodder that is the beginning of a slippery slope that all those other religions fear. They fear that if Scientology goes down, they'll be next. They fear that if the IRS looks into Scientology's tax-exempt status, that once that happens, there'll be calls for them to look into their tax-exempt status and the private jets that they own and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So they fight hard to prevent and support, prevent that incursion and support Scientology in its efforts to prevent those incursions. But it will eventually change. And the way that it will eventually change is by continuing to keep getting the message out and making more people aware and raising the awareness of more and more people and never shutting up. Partly, like, I'm never shutting up partly because they want me to. <laughs> so they want me to shut up. So fuck you. I'm never shutting up. In a, in a way, we, you got dragged into the fight, right? Yes, I did. I was not. I was not in this fight. I was not. All the steps that we took, we had to take. We were forced to take. It was self-preservation. Well, that that was actually one of the questions from our listeners, uh, because I'd posted that we're talking to you, and they said, how do you find joy when your work in history with Scientology is so sad and dark? Which I I feel like you've kind of answered, but like, you're happy now. Like, you're doing so well. Am I right? Like, that's my take on you. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm incredibly happy. And, you know... One thing that I always say to people, Sarah, is, look, there are a lot of things in my life that I regret. There are a lot of things that I don't feel good about, but there's nothing I can do about changing the past. All I can do is change the future. I can't alter what happened or what I did. I can learn from it. I can look back on it and go, okay, I'm never doing that again, or okay, I am doing this again. And I can do something about it into the future because Leah has often said to me, and we sort of joke, like everything that we've done in life has brought us to this point with this exact intention to uh, do what we are doing now because nobody else could be doing it other than yeah. us. We've, and we feel the same way. <laughs> it's it's sort of like, uh, you know, a bit of a, well, I'm going to pat myself on the back and make myself feel better. But there's also some truth to that, mm-hmm. that the experiences that we have had make us uniquely qualified to do what we do now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what we do now is it's so odd to say this, but what I am doing now is what I thought I was doing in Scientology. We've said that. Yeah, absolutely. I thought I was doing something to help people. I honestly and truthfully did. And it was what kept me there for so long was that I believed that. It was total bullshit, <laughs> but I believed it. But that motivation of, 
I want to do things to help people doesn't go away. And one of the things that's shocking, or sh- not shocking, one of the things that that is upsetting to me is you see a lot of people who leave an organization like Nexium or Scientology, and they find themselves sort of lost. And what they lose is that greater purpose for their life. And I've substituted the greater purpose of clearing the planet with Scientology with, I'm going to stop the abuses and get my kids back. Yeah. And so that's like the bigger thing that I have in life now. And, you know, I say get my kids back. I have now wonderful kids that are no, in no way Scientologists in any way, shape, or form and never will be. But I'm talking about my previous children. Yeah. And just to circle back to the beginning of our conversation where we talked about pumping tires, you, that's what you call patting yourself on the back. And it, it is, does feel weird to do for yourself, but, but we can do it for you. And we do it all the time. That is exactly what you are doing. And it's so inspiring. And that's the thing that I, you know, from the, what I mentioned at the beginning, meeting that woman, you don't even know who you're affecting on that. Right. Article. And that's, you know, and, and, and even that woman, what, what, what she will do because she's seen your show and cause you'll, you don't meet her. Right. So that's, that must feel so good. And you know why I'm so happy to be in this new club with you. <laughs> and so. there's a lot of people of influence and power that are aligned with Scientology and there's no way they don't know they're aligned with something that's abusive. How does that end? You, you mean like the celebrities in Scientology? The Tom Cruises yeah, of the and, world? And I, I think that that ends when there is enough public exposure and pressure that it just it, it's no longer tenable to, to be uh, anti-gay. It's no longer tenable to be pro-Scientology. Like eventually, like I said, the equation flips. It's getting tougher and tougher for those guys to be pro-Scientology. I mean, if you notice... They don't go out promoting Scientology anymore. No. no. Tom Cruise is not jumping on Oprah's couch talking about how wonderful Scientology is and how it's, you know, solved all his problems or arguing with Matt Lauer on the Today Show about psychiatry. He's out there flipping out about making fucking movies. And he has stories planted routinely in the tabloid media saying he's leaving Scientology. They come out every time one of his movies is coming out. There's a news story that appears in, you know, Us Weekly or In Touch or some other, you know, weekly glossy thing on the on the supermarket shelves that says Tom Cruise rumored to be leaving Scientology and rejoining Surrey. And this is because he understands and his PR people understand that his association with Scientology is costing him money right. now and costing the studios money. And when that happens, oh, sorry, all bets are off. You know, quick quick Scientology or quick Tom Cruise story. When when he jumped on the couch, I was still in Nexium. Yeah. And I'm and Going Clear had just come out, which we hadn't seen, and we were encouraged not to see. I remember thinking, okay, I can see how people think he looks crazy, but if he's happy, who am I to judge? Because that's how I felt about people yes. judging me and Nexium. Right. But that's actually a great segue to our segment that we've now incorporated with our guests, which is called That Chaps My Ass. 
<laughs> so this is a segment. Oh, what, we got another four and, hours? Yes. No, no. Well, the, here's the, here's where it's fun. You need to share something that hasn't been shared anywhere else that's super petty and and not necessarily petty, but like not such a big deal, but also like, I'll give you an example because we, we, sh- we share them on every episode. Anytime we were talking about anything, somebody somebody would always say, well, Keith says that you should only have X amount of calories or well, Keith says, and then people would like refer to him as if he's the expert of anything. And that really fucking chapped my ass. Okay, go. Okay. David Miscavige cheated at everything he did. He cheated at card games. He cheated at golf. He cheated at chess. He cheated <laughs> at Everything he ever did, I would, uh, we'd be playing golf with him. He'd cheat like a motherfucker. <laughs> that I'd be playing cousin. It, that used to chap my ass. Okay, totally fair. All right. Um, so I'm just trying to be quick here. So the, one of the things I did notice as a similarity is that this at cause languaging, the responsible thing. And one of the, one of the things that we want to bring to our audience is like, what are the good things that we got? out of this whole shit show so that they don't have to join a cult. And I think the concept of personal responsibility as a concept in a certain package is really good. Something happens in your life. If you go like, Oh my God, this happened to me versus, wow, I'm, you know, I made certain decisions and, um, or I had certain expectations and it didn't work out and you see your role in something or how you, we used to say how you authored it or, you know, how you participated, but there's a limit to that especially if you've been conned or you're the victim of some sort of abuse or deception. And, and eventually there comes a point where at causedness is used against you for your own demise in essence. And, and it seems like that's the case also with Scientology. Um, do you ever use that? Like any of that going forward in your life? Like, is there any, anything good that you can glean out of this, uh, your experience that you still use or do you have to like start again for yourself? No, I think that there are all sorts of things. I mean, the most difficult thing, honestly, is to sort out what is what is real and what's bullshit and what's good and what's bad because they're so inextricably intertwined. Yeah. But, you know, like I said before, if if everything that was presented in Scientology or in Nexium was just all horseshit, then nobody would be involved. So there right. are valuable things that are in there, which is what attracts you in the first place. You know, the in, in Scientology, there is a, a big stress put on communication and the the ability uh, to be able to communicate, and that's something that is is helpful to everybody. Like it, being able to communicate easily with other people is something that Scientology does a great and spends a great deal of time focused on to teach you. And there are things about it that are terrible, but the fundamental idea of improving your ability to communicate with other people is a great plus and it sticks with you and it is a good thing and it's not harmful, but parts of it are, and ultimately it gets used to control you when you get into doing the training routines and stop being abused and they're supposed to like, just like you had to go through, you can't, you can't pee, you can't do this, you can't do that. That then becomes abusive. So there's all sorts of things, but I, I, what I will say is that 
I believe that there are a lot easier ways to go about finding those things that are valuable in Scientology or in Nexium or anywhere else. Go buy a book. Listen to an audio book. There's tons of people out there who have figured a lot of things out about how to go through life and solve problems and become more self-fulfilled and more competent and et cetera, et cetera. And they don't have an organization that puts their thoughts into play and starts manipulating and controlling you. You get to read it and accept it or reject it and then move on to your next book. So that's what I would recommend to people. Go read a book or get an audio book or listen. Don't get involved in organized groups that are promising to provide that to you. Do it yourself. That was that was one of my last questions. Somebody had asked, like, what's what's your advice? And I know you've got, we've got two minutes and you have to leave. So before you go, I just wanted to say that of all most people wrote on my statements. No, no question. Mm. I absolutely love what he's done as a human to be vulnerable. That's one thing. No questions. Just wanted to share my insane love and respect for this man. And finally, no questions. Just to say he's awesome. So I just wanted you to know. You were my pace car. When I saw you, I was like, what, what that guy's doing? Thanks so much, guys. Uh, I Like, it's, it's one of the great pleasures of my life post-Scientology. The people whom I have met that I, that had nothing to do with Scientology. Like, you guys and Mark and Bonnie and, you know, Lloyd Evans, the ex-Jehovah's Witness. Oh, absolutely. Guru who is become a great friend of mine and like all sorts of people. And like you said, Sarah, this is like a group. It's like a gang. And, uh, and it's a lot of great, enjoyable, lovely people who you know, when you're when you're in Scientology or you're in Nexium, you get to hang out with people because they're Scientologists, not necessarily because you like them. And that's a big difference now in the world is I get to hang out with the people that I like, not the ones that I'm supposed to. I love it. Mike, thank you so much for spending the time Mike. with us. I, I hope we get to keep talking because it's always so fun and educational. And thank you, Mike. Have a great weekend and thanks again and uh, we'll be in touch. Oh, we'll keep talking. You're not getting rid of me that easy. <laughs> you too, guys. Bye. That was great. He even got emotional with you there at the end. I know. It's always great to see that. Mike Rinder, my personal pace car for this entire journey. And it's great to have him on and hear him talk about life. He's in a great place. He really is. And we've we've read that in a number of the recovery books is that the best revenge is your own personal happiness and success. And he's clearly doing that, which is really heartwarming to see for me. And we'll definitely have him on again as the story is always ongoing with Scientology and these things. So thank you to Mike Grinder uh, for coming on. Honor to have you. Thanks everybody for listening. It's been a great conversation. Looking forward to next time. Bye for now.
We're going to be back soon with more episodes of A Little Bit Culty with more experts and survivors and sometimes experts who are survivors and some familiar faces from The Vow. If you got suggestions or questions on upcoming topics, find us on Instagram at a little bit culty. And for more background on what got me to this point, my memoir, Scarred, the true story of how I escaped Nexium, the cult that bound my life, is available on Amazon, Audible, and wherever books are sold. If you'd like to help us spread the word about a little bit culty podcast, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. Like literally take their phone out and, and press subscribe. Five stars. Five That's stars. five of them. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and every major listening app. A Little Bit Culty is executive produced by me, your co-host, Sarah Edmondson, and Anthony Nippy Ames. Associate producer is Jess Tardy. Produced, edited, mixed, and mastered by Citizens of Sound. Our amazing theme song, Cultivated, is by John Bryant and co-written by Nigel Asselin. Additional original music is composed by Will Rutherford. We'll be back with more episodes. Until then, don't don't join join a cult. cult. I'm Sarah Edmondson, and thanks for listening to A Little Bit Culty.